number of cities use their either old but more often than not newfound centrality at the very least on the eastern board of the Mediterranean in order to claim preeminence or at the very least importance within the new nation state. The, the Ottoman state simply did not have the infrastructure. You know, they don't have patrol boats, they don't have corvette, they don't have coast guard, they don't have the thing. And very often the very people who were supposed to control uh, this, this, this traffic were actually involved in it. I'm interested in how local actors in these countries try to shape tourism and try to um, kind of present the places they were living in to tourists. And the interesting thing about that in the Mediterranean context is that, of course, it is based on an imperial integration of the Mediterranean, on shipping lines crossing the Mediterranean, kind of requires the interest of Europe in the region, which is linked to imperialist concepts. But it's also a way of nationalists or sympathize with nationalism to present themselves as something different. Hello and welcome to the Southeast Passage and the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Andreas Guidi and today's episode is entitled Questioning the Mediterranean, representations from the southern shore in the 19th and 20th centuries. Mediterraneum, Imesogios, Al-Bahr al-Apiad al-Mutawasit. In most languages spoken along its shores, the Mediterranean evokes the idea of a liquid continent, a seascape in between lands. This in-betweenness has been a factor fostering connectivity and mutual influences, but also a space where cultural and political rivalries escalated and created asymmetries. Let's have a look at the picture we chose as a cover for this episode. It shows a woman in a bathing suit, posing on a diving platform at the swimming pool of Saint-Georges Hotel at the Corniche, the seaside promenade of Beirut. This photograph, published in a brochure issued in 1937 under the patronage of the Lebanese Ministry of Tourism, plays with all the representations and self-representations of Lebanon and its relationship with the Mediterranean. The editor of the magazine, Ibrahim Maklouf, was co-founder of the review La Revue du Liban et de l'Orient Méditerranéen. Yet, in contrast to any imperialist visions of the Mediterranean, the photograph refers to a local, Beiruti perspective. You see the position of the camera just above the surface of the sea. It evokes a kind of sensual experience of the Mediterranean, while at the same time it also provides the spectator with a view of Beirut's urban modernity dominating the picture. This is evident, for example, in the architecture of the hotel, dating from the early 1930s, but also in the portrayed woman. She is short-haired, athletic, young and independent, an archetype of the modern woman. So the photograph, which was actually addressing potential tourists, responded to the reductionist orientalist images of Eastern women, Oriental societies and archaic Mediterranean. So this picture in a way invites us to think more deeply about Lebanese and more in general Middle Eastern self-representations in the 19th 
and 20th centuries in regard to their Mediterranean dimension. In fact, the Mediterranean is not an easy object for historians. The seminal work, at least for the 20th century historiography of this region, is Fernand Brodel's La Méditerranée et le monde méditerranéen à l'époque de Philippe II, which was published in 1949. After the catastrophe of World War II, the French historian managed to publish his dissertation, which was actually based on a research he began much earlier, in the 1920s. Back then, Brodel worked as a high school teacher in Constantine and Algiers, and was thus part of colonial circulations between France and Algeria, which contributed decisively to his study. Rodel famously assigned the Mediterranean its own temporality, the so-called longue durée, corresponding to the slow pace of social transformations. In fact, Rodel regretted that he had not integrated Arab and Ottoman sources when approaching these questions. This again points to an interesting problem. So whereas the Mediterranean was constructed as a cultural object of investigation by Western intellectuals through contacts with its southern shore, we still know very little about how actors there reacted to the representations of the Mediterranean region in the 19th and 20th century especially, an era marked by imperialism, colonialism, but also of course nationalist movements and a broad ideological experimentation. This was the point of departure for a conference which took place at the Orient Institute in Beirut in October 2019. It was part of the conference series within the research network Modern Mediterranean, Dynamics of a World Region 1800-2000, to founded by the German Research Foundation and led by Manuel Borutta professor of modern and contemporary history at the University of Constance. The two main organizers were Esther Müller, researcher at the Leibniz Institute of European History in Mainz, and Yasmin Dam, PhD candidate in global history at the University of Kassel. While attending the conference in Beirut, I had the chance to discuss with Esther and Yasmin about their ideas and the origins of the event. Well, our idea in organizing this workshop was basically that the Mediterranean as such is quite absent in Middle Eastern studies as a topic, as a whole uh, region. And also in Mediterranean studies like the Arab South or in general Southern Shore is quite marginal. And so the workshop basically pursues the question whether it's possible to bring these two fields of study together and to ask whether it changes our understanding of the Mediterranean if we take into account perspectives from the south and from the southeastern shores of the Mediterranean. So that's why we gathered a number of experts from um, Europe but also from the Middle East itself and um, asked them first of all uh, about the, the idea of the Mediterranean, if it was present in Arab thinking, but we also integrated uh, Jewish and Zionist uh, thinkers and their ideas and also particular notions of belonging such as the uh, Phoenicianism, for example, uh, in, in Lebanon in comparison to other um, 
notions such as uh, pharaonism in Egypt, pan-Arab nationalism or the Islamic Ummah. What, what about the Mediterranean in, in, this, uh, in this, these ideas? Um, we learned from the contribution from uh, Manfred Singh that um, Arab thinkers adopted or integrated the concept of the Mediterranean from Europe. The, the name um, the Mediterranean Sea, Al-Bahar Al-Mutawassat or uh, Al-Bahar Al-Abyad Al-Mutawassat, which is in fact a combination of the Ottoman idea of the White Sea and the Mediterranean Sea, um, is something um, thinkers like Tahtawi, an Egyptian who went to Paris, brought first um, to Egypt, but he integrated it into um, his own ideas and um, There were several thinkers who um, rejected this idea of the Mediterranean, but also others who, who, um, who stressed it, such as uh, another Egyptian thinker, Taha Hussein, who, who said that um, the Mediterranean is, um, is a way to link both Europe and, and the Arab world, the East and the West. Historians and students of the Mediterranean might be familiar with terms such as Mare Nostrum, the Italian imperialist projection onto this seascape. Mission Civilisatrice, the cultural endeavors within French colonialism to transform local societies, or liberalism related to trade as a factor which deeply impacted the economic fabric of the region. But what about the interaction between such imperialist visions of the Mediterranean and the societies they addressed? The imperial expansion in the Mediterranean by the French and the British indeed triggered some kind of space formation as a reaction to Mediterranean notions or to notions of a military, a strategic, an occupied Mediterranean. And the reaction were not necessarily also um, Im imperialist in their dimension, but often they claimed nation states equal to the European nation states. So we have the paradox in a way that the imperial expansion might have triggered national Uh, reactions from, from Arab or other nationalists. I do work on tourism to the southeastern Mediterranean shore in the 1920s and 1930s from Egypt, um, Palestine, Syria to Lebanon. And I'm interested in how local actors in these countries try to shape tourism and try to um, kind of present the places they were living in to tourists. And the interesting thing about that in the Mediterranean context is that, of course, it is based on an imperial integration of the Mediterranean, on shipping lines crossing the Mediterranean. It kind of requires the interest of Europe in the region, which is linked to imperialist concepts, but it's also a way of nationalists or sympathizers with nationalism to present themselves as something different. So in practices, the Mediterranean plays a huge role, but in the representations of the region, it doesn't or it does barely occur. After World War One, when the European photographic studios and postcard editors, they leave the region and local editors and photographers take over the focus shifts and the visualization of the country is not any longer an orientalist view of the region, but it turns to a landscape representation of, as I said, Mount Lebanon, thus putting the mountain forward and creating a territorially defined national space.
I am not satisfied at all with this series of cards. Nothing good exists here in this regard, and one has to stick to this poor selection. What is most fashionable are the persons, Arab types, more or less dressed women, etc. This is not what one sees in the streets, and this one looks like a ready-made painting, at any rate, conventional. If I find a better series, I'll send it to you. But it is not likely. This is an anonymous comment, written in French, found on the back of a postcard displaying the view of one of Damascus's main squares, with the town hall standing out in the middle of the picture. It is a part of a series including representations of other cities of the Mandate as well, including, of course, Beirut. It was produced in 1922, in the moment of transition just described by Yasmin. Local photographers increasingly gain visibility in the market, and they express their will to change the visual code for representing their homeland. The Arab types, for example, mentioned in the comment, are less and less present in later series, which turn their back to the urban landscape and reach to the mountains of Mount Lebanon. We see hills covered with flowers and orchards, villages connected by winding roads, no trace of the sea or of larger cities. As Yasmin suggests, this can be linked to an appropriation of photography and visual representations during the French mandate. We can also assume that these pictures could be sent to relatives living far away in North and South America, where large communities of Syrians and Lebanese had emigrated before World War I. For them, these mountainous landscapes could well be more familiar than the city of Beirut and the coast, and these images contributed to keep upright this migrant's attachment to their places of origin, once the state in which they had lived had collapsed. But the demise of the Ottoman Empire did not only entail a shift of visual codes. New borders and new economic developments changed the whole geography of the Middle East. In Beirut, we had a conversation with Cyrus Shayek, professor of international history at the Graduate Institute in Geneva and author of The Middle East and the Making of the Modern World, published by Harvard University Press in 2017. Cyrus elaborated on some of the concepts of this book, which might be useful to understand whether there was a Mediterranean dimension in which this transformation was embedded. I think one could argue that among other sets of approaches to thinking about the modern world, there are three that had quite a considerable influence in the 19th and then 20th century at different times. One has to do with the nation state. The second has to do with thinking of cities, so urbanization. And the third, or a third, uh, would be globalization, which, as we all know, has become quite central in the last 20, 25 years, also in history. Now, there is a sort of a problem with each and every one of them, although they also are very useful analytical lenses to understanding the modern world. But the problem is that each, almost by necessity, contains not only its own empirical reference, the nation state, the city, whatever the globe would be, but also includes other fields. The modern city is so particular and special because it's a 
pivot for all sorts of different, not only national, but transnational flows. We can talk about even a single neighborhood as a place that combines all sorts of different fields. The urban one, the global one, nation-state ones, etc., etc. So the question is then, what do we do with this conceptual conundrum? Transspecialization is my answer to it. The cases that I talk about are never only about one thing or another, but always about particular intertwinements. For instance, the way in which after the First World War, certain cities reinvented themselves as central to the nation states, claiming that cities nationalized themselves and that in turn the nation sort of urbanized itself in the imagination of people. Other examples are triangular, where the global is really part of all of this too. Damascus is a particular case because it's the capital, and I think one sort of sees a capital effect, right? The effect that a city becoming a new capital of a new nation state has on its ability to claim centrality. But other cities trying to react and basically do something of the same thing as well. Aleppo did in Syria, Tripoli did in Lebanon, for instance. You could also say, however, that in political and economic reality, we can think of Syria not as a homogeneous, unified nation-state, but as a new unit that is very strongly made up of cities with their own hinterlands. And in that sense, we could say that the nation-state is multi-urban or perhaps urbanized. Last but not least, a number of cities use their either old but more often than not newfound centrality on the eastern board of the Mediterranean in order to claim preeminence or at the very least importance within the new nation state. Haifa is a Palestinian, is the Palestinian example. There is a very interesting similarity between Arab and Jewish Haifawis talking about Haifa as being central in, um, in, in, Mande, in Mande Palestine. And the other the even better example is, of course, Beirut. Now, that needs to be understood, of course, against the backdrop of imperial, imperial investments, right? The Ottomans already having done some of this, um, and locals pushing for it, too. And the British and the French basically having to follow that particular road or trajectory because changing tack in the middle, as it were, was just not worth it. There was already quite a lot of infrastructural development, for instance, in the Beirut and in the Haifawi case, railways, railways, most importantly. So changing everything sort of didn't make that much sense. You know? That in turn meant that the Mediterranean per se wasn't a conceptual unit that I brought in. Having said that, yes, these maritime connections did become more important for people in Bilad Hashem, but I would, I would add three qualifications. It meant more for some people than others. And I think there is a quite important distinction here between people on the coast and particularly in the really big cities and other people. Good example, Beirut is in the 18th, 19th century, push Istanbul to basically give them more money, recognition, administrative status. They become a wilaya, they become a province in 8088, I think. Um, that's something that people in the hinterland in that same sense couldn't quite do, and the Beirutis could do it because they were sitting in a port city that started to matter. The second point would be to say that that Mediterranean connection is, of course, by no means the only one. So 
there are older connections that are, you know, terrestrial um, that have to do with trade, that have to do with exchanges of, you know, thought that are not as important as they used to be. Aleppo isn't exactly the entrepôt in the 19th century, it used to be in the 18th and before, but it still matters to a degree, and there are even attempts to sort of revive it, sort of by hook or crook. And that brings me to my third point, which is that also maritime connections, of course, are not only with basically the Mediterranean and then the West, but also with what's going on with Asia, which are extremely important as well. So I think it is an important connecting liquid continent thing, to use the term you know, others have used before, but we need to see it in a larger context too. Hosted in Beirut, the conference Questioning the Mediterranean, Self-Representations from the Southern Shore, was also an opportunity to address perhaps the most important factor of change in Lebanese history, emigration. Findings from important books on this subject in fact resonated during our discussions, such as Akram Khater's Inventing Home, Emigration, Gender and the Middle Class in Lebanon, 1870 to 1920, which focuses on the impact of circulations and returns of migrants who had experienced different socialization patterns in the Americas. Stacy Farentold, with the recently published Between the Ottomans and the Entente, The First World War in the Syrian and Lebanese Diaspora, 1908-1925, examines how emigrants were caught in between political turbulence and mobility restrictions in the period spanning from the Young Turk Revolution to the consolidation of the mandate system in Syria and Lebanon. You can find an episode of the Ottoman History podcast in which Stacy presents the findings of her book. Indeed, people on the move not only produce circulations of objects, resources and ideas, they are also themselves objects of a governance which defines space increasingly in terms of territory. Historical research in migratory regulations in the southern shore of the Mediterranean are today surely more relevant than ever, but we still know little about how states within this region try to impose restrictions on departures, whereas we tend to focus on Europe as a destination in the past as well as in the present. In Beirut we had the opportunity to have an insight into an ongoing project by Selim Deringil, professor of history at the School of Arts and Sciences of the Lebanese American University. Selim, whom we have also already hosted at the Ottoman History Podcast, is currently working on Ottoman state policies aimed at hampering the emigration of Ottoman citizens at the turn of the 20th century. Now, this emigration mostly occurred on sea. 
Although, again, the Mediterranean might not be used as a category of analysis, the history of Ottoman immigration clearly intersects the history of this broader region. One of the aspects that I would really like to uh, uh, look into is this clandestine uh, immigration. Because I showed you pictures of those boats. Those most, even as late as the end of the 19th century, would be sailing boats because people couldn't afford engines. Right? And they were smugglers, basically. So they would have to rendezvous with a bigger ship in international waters. Right? So that's something that really struck me as I was reading this. Because the Ottomans just say, oh, 20 miles offshore. 20 miles offshore is a long way. Right? And so to find the ship 20 miles offshore, you have, to be, you have to know what you're doing. Even if that ship is waiting for you, which they were usually. And the other aspect is uh, this, um, the, the difficulty of controlling a shoreline. Uh, because we're, we're talking about a, a time in history where we don't have the, the, the Ottoman state simply did not have the infrastructure. You know, they don't have patrol boats, they don't have corvette, they don't have coast guard. And the very people who were supposed to control uh, this, this, this traffic were actually involved in it. For example, one of the documents that I read talks about um, uh, somebody reporting that they, tr they were trying to stop uh, two boats joining a, a British ship, actually, offshore. They say, we captured one of the boats, but we were not able to capture the other with 25 people inside, right? So this, was, this is, shows you that, you know, they actually did try to, and they captured some of these people. And, of course, the other thing was the um, uh, active collusion of, of the Italian uh, authorities uh, in these, in the, in the, in helping these people to emigrate. They're not necessarily Italians. It was an Italian ship, you see. And that's why the, uh, the Ottomans went to the Italian authorities. Yeah. Well, you had, obviously, you had the port authority here in Beirut uh, who were supposed to control. Vasa Pasha, one of the, probably one of the most interesting mutasarrifs, uh, he writes to Istanbul saying, I've got this whole thing under control. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to impound every single ship sailing ship that I, that I know is trying to smuggle people out, right? And he says, this way I will put a stop to this. Of course, he's not able to, but this is the thing. He wants to actually confiscate the boats. He says, once it's, it makes sense. Right? If he had been able to, but he's not, because of various reasons. There's too much vested interest involved, okay? People are making money. Now, all, do all down the food chain, people are making money. All the way from, in fact, this was the governor of Tripoli, uh, against whom they started court proceedings. Vasa started court proceedings against, because Tripoli was attached to the Musarafiya. And he tried to, and he said, we can't do anything. The guy walked. The most obvious concrete measure is this demand to compile lists of people who actually made it to New York, Barcelona, or wherever, so that they could get hold of their families or the guarantors, whoever these people were, and make them pay this indemnity that they had signed for. And 50, 11, 50 Ottoman uh, pounds in those days is not a small amount of money. My feeling is that they weren't very often able to do this because, as Vasa says in one of his uh, letters to Istanbul, he says, you know, they, you sent me all these lists, but it's like, uh, you know, Butrus so-and-so, or, you know, uh, Ahmed so-and-so, but I don't know where they're from, 
So I can't follow up on this. You know, I don't know where, which location they're from. I mean, as always with all of these things about Ottoman documentation, you know, when you read the Ottoman documents, you think, wow, what a powerful state, how efficient they are, you know. And then you look at the reality, it's nothing like it, you know, to order something to be done. One of the things I've always found most amusing about the Ottoman archives is if somebody is writing to somebody saying, so you have to stop this, you have to stop this, or you have to do this, you have to do this, it means it's not being done. <laughs> the consul in New York, his name was Asim Bey in the 1890s, he's a sensible chap. And he's, for example, he says, you know, you, 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 you call, you're asking me if these people are destitute and beggars and what not. No, I mean, he actually gives figures and that's very interesting. He says, in my area, New York was the most highest concentration of Syrian, Lebanese, uh, whatever, immigrants. And he says they're earning $4 a week and they're not destitute by any means. So he's actually saying, you know, leave them alone. You know, they're, they're, they're earning a living, why should we bother them? Right? But there are others, like Tassim Pasha in Madrid. He says, these are riffraff, you know. We should just stop it, you know, how we're going to do it. another issue. But his attitude is very elitist, very, very different. These insights into Ottoman and Middle Eastern history of the 19th and 20th century seem at first to confirm Peregrine Horden and Nicholas Porcel's claim that concerning this period we can only write a history in the Mediterranean and not a history of the Mediterranean. This base, so goes their assumption, was fragmented and consisted of micro-regions with their own path of development rather than a coherent container. Yet were references to the Mediterranean so marginal among actors from the southern shore? We ask Esta Müller about some remarks drawn from her own research project. So uh, what we learned from the conference is that um, the concept of the Mediterranean apparently is not uh, the most central to, um, to the ideas of Arab thinkers, for example, or also in the case of the Ottoman Empire. The, the, it is not only the Mediterranean, but other seas such as the Black Sea, uh, which are very important. And Arab thinkers adopted or integrated the concept of the Mediterranean more from Europe. My current research project deals with uh, the history of humanitarian aid in the Arab East in the 20th century. I particularly focus on Egypt, but I also link it to other countries such as Lebanon, for example. And uh, the Mediterranean is also important in two regards. First of all, it was the sea of uh, interaction um, for refugees uh, in the world wars, but also uh, and in the 50s and 60s when um, foreigners had to leave Egypt through the Mediterranean Jewish Egyptians who went to uh, France, for example, um, but uh, also in a more uh, conceptual sense, humanitarian actors I look at also refer to the Mediterranean. I would like to give the example of uh, a Greek um, Egyptian. His name was Patrice de Zoreb. He lived in Alexandria and he was one of the founders of the Egyptian Red Crescent Society branch in Alexandria. He identified a lot with the, uh, with the idea of the Red Cross 
and also of the Red Crescent. And he described himself as a Mediterranean a cosmopolitan, uh, stressing his links to um, other Mediterranean cultures. And it's interesting if you look at him to see the, the limits uh, also of this cosmopolitan uh, aspiration because he, he uh, wished to be part of the International Red Cross Organization. And for a certain time they um, enabled him to be part of it, but uh, not to the extent that he was allowed, for example, to become an official delegate of the International Committee of the Red Cross, the ICRC, uh, in, in Cairo, so or uh, in, in, in Egypt, in, in his case in Alexandria. So I think he's a, a very interesting figure for illustrating the possibilities, but also the limits of uh, cosmopolitan thinking and um, belonging uh, in, in times of colonial and uh, imperial um, domination. Connections and separations. This duality running through the historiography of the Mediterranean can thus be reconsidered if we take into account voices from the southern shore in their creative appropriation, their challenges to, and the variations they prompted in regard to perspectives and models originating in Europe. Nationalism based on mythical origins, anti-colonial movements, or the politicization of transnational Islam all refer to visions of the Mediterranean whose sparks might have come from the northern shore, but which were in turn transformed through an active role emerging in the south. This was all for today's discussion. Let me remind you that you can visit our website, thesouthispassage.com and ottomanhistorypodcast.com, as well as our platforms on social media where you can interact with our large community of followers. On the website you will also find some bibliographic content as well as links if you wish to know more about the connections between Mediterranean history and the history of the Middle East. We would also like to thank Wachdi Abu Diab, the Lebanese composer who provided us with the wonderful music that you listened to in this episode. You will find a link to Wachdi's YouTube channel on our website. So this was all for today. Stay tuned for more episodes coming up soon. And until next time, take care. Thank you.